Well, as many of you know, my son is in a special stage of life right now where there's one thing constantly on his mind, and that is superheroes. And out of all the superheroes out there, one stands above the rest as the greatest superhero of all, Captain America. Anyone else a Captain America fan in here? I like Captain America. Captain America, as you uh, may not know, was a World War II hero. While most of the world was fighting the Nazis, Captain America fought the even greater threat, Hydra. But you know, before Captain America was the strongest and fastest man alive, he was just a kid from Brooklyn named Steve Rogers. And, and this, the thing about Steve Rogers was that he was, he was an absolute weakling. He was small and he was sickly and, and wasn't even allowed to enlist in the war. He, he had no business fighting bad guys. They said, we don't want you. Uncle Sam said, we don't want you. But everything changed when he agreed to a secret experiment. And he was strapped into a chair and he was shot through with something called Vita Rays, which I'm trying to get my hands on still. But from that day on, puny Steve Rogers was no more and he became Captain America. Well, it's a silly illustration, but Steve Rogers, pre-Vita Rays, Steve Rogers is a great picture of ourselves in, in this sense that we are all, like him, spiritual weaklings. We are weak. And like him, we also have powerful enemies who we have no business fighting. We're opposed by the world. We're opposed by our own flesh. We're opposed by the schemes of the devil. And each of these things, in reality, is much stronger than we are. These things are much stronger than you. We don't stand a chance against these enemies. Jesus put it as straightforwardly as anybody could. He said, you can do nothing. That's who we are. You can do nothing. You are weak, inherently spiritually weak. Of course, that's not all that Jesus said. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But with him, with him, we who are inherent spiritual weaklings are empowered with the very power of God. Though we are inherently weak in Christ, we have God's immeasurable strength. This is what the passage today is going to teach us, is that though we are inherently weak in Christ, we have God's immeasurable strength. Our problem is that we don't really know what we have, and we don't know why we have it, and we don't know how to use it. We easily forget these things, and we need to be reminded of what God has given us and why. So you can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We are wrapping up the first rich chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians this morning. I think on my original schedule in Ephesians, I had us finishing this in January, this first chapter, and every week just got to slow down. We got to slow down. It's been so good and so rich, and we're, and we're finally at the end of chapter 1 this week. And we're picking up mid-prayer in verse 19. Last week we saw that Paul was praying for God to give the gift of the Holy Spirit's illumination to the church, and he specifically asked God to eliminate three things. He, he said, let them know the hope to which he's called you, and let them know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and let them know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And, and as Paul writes this last request, as Paul often does, he, he just begins to rabbit trail at that point, and he begins meditating on God's power toward us. As he writes the immeasurable greatness of his power, he begins thinking about that power and describing in detail what this power really is. And so that's why we're looking at this just directly head on today. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? 
This morning we're going to see three things about this power that we need to know from these verses. So let's read the text together and then we'll walk through and see three things that we need to know about God's power. So we'll begin in verse 17 and pick up into our text today, which is verses 19 through 23. He says, I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Yet in this text, we see three things that we need to know about God's power. And the first thing we see is the greatness of God's power. We see the greatness of God's power. So again, last week, the last thing he prayed for is that we may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. And we saw last week that when he says no, he's not just wanting us to have a cognitive knowledge of his power. He wants us to, to personally, experientially know the immeasurable greatness of his power. He wants his readers to know, God wants us to know how powerful God's power is. How powerful is the power of God? And notice how he describes the power of God. He piles up adjectives to describe the power of God. He doesn't just say that you may know his power. He says that you may know the greatness of his power. And and not just the greatness of his power. No, the immeasurable greatness of his power. And if that wasn't enough, he says, according to the working of his great might. The power of God is immeasurably great. You can never reach a point where you say, and that's how powerful God is. No more. That's the limit. No, it's immeasurably great. It's it's an almighty power. Theologically, we talk about God's omnipotence. He's all-powerful. How how powerful is the power of God? It's immeasurably powerful. He is all-powerful. But, you know, words can only help us grasp the power of God so much. And so Paul, after trying to describe it with words, he points to the ultimate demonstration of God's power. I'm sure many of you know this when when you're trying to tell your your kids um, how much you love them. You say, "I love you so much," and 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 you might say, you know, they say, "How much?" You say, "I, I love you this much." Right? It's as far as you can from fingertip to fingertip. I love you this much. Why do you do that? You're trying to show them what you mean by your words. I love you so much. This much. That's what Paul's doing here. He just said God's power is immeasurably great, and now he's going to say it's this great. It's this great. Let's just point to an example of his power to show you how great it really is. What is the ultimate example of God's power? The creation of the universe, the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the walls of Jericho tumbling down. No, as powerful as all these things were, that's not what Paul points to. Paul says that the ultimate demonstration of God's power is in the resurrection, exaltation, and lordship of Jesus Christ. This is where we look to to see the ultimate example of the power of God. Look at what he says in verses 19 and 20. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So what power are we talking about here? How powerful is God's power? We're talking about the power that God worked 
when he raised Jesus from the dead. We're talking about the power that God worked when he took a dead man and made him alive again. And this wasn't just any dead man. This was a crucified man who had taken on the full weight of the sins of the whole world. And he wasn't just made alive again either. He was made alive never to die again. You know, Lazarus is dead today. He was raised to life, but he died again. But Jesus was raised back to life into immortality. He was raised to everlasting life, life that is glorious and continues forever. Jesus was raised to a glorious eternal life as the first fruits of all of our resurrection who believe in him. This is the power of God that took a crucified man, crucified for the sins of the world, and raised him to immortal, eternal life. This is the power of God. Not only was Jesus raised, look what he says next. He says, and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So again, what power are we talking about here? How powerful is the power of God? We're talking about the power that God worked in Christ's exaltation. Not only was Jesus raised from the dead, But then he ascended into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He was exalted above every earthly power and every spiritual power. And again, look at Paul's language, not just above, but far above. He is far above all these powers. And not just in this age, but also in the one to come. Forever and ever, Jesus is far above every other ruler and every other power in the universe. Jesus went from being buried in the grave to being exalted forever above all other powers. This is the power of God. And Paul's not done yet. Not only was he raised, not only was he exalted, but look at what he says next in verse 22. And he put all things under his feet. He put all things under his feet. What this is telling us is that Jesus wasn't just exalted over every other power. Jesus actually reigns over every other power. One commentator says the powers are not only inferior to Christ, they are also subject to him. So so, so what's the distinction here between being exalted above them and them being subject to him? Well, thank you. We we can make a list of all the most powerful people in the world. And someone would be on the top of that list. Let's say they, they are above the rest. But that doesn't mean that everyone else under that list is subject to them, does it? It just means that they're above. But what but what if that person was actually reigning over all those other powers? so that they're actually submitting to him, subject to him. They need to obey him. This is what God has done in Christ. He has subjected every other power to Jesus. Every single power in heaven and on earth is actually subject to Jesus as the reigning Lord. He has all dominion. He uses this phrase, under his feet. Under his feet. This is a picture of of victory. It's a picture of military victory. After defeating an enemy, a king would symbolically place his foot on the neck of his enemy to demonstrate that that enemy is now subject to his rule. And this is the power of God that a crucified man who was dead and buried now has had everything in the universe placed under his feet as the sovereign ruler of it all. This is the power of God. This is how powerful God is. And the first thing we need to do in applying this sermon to our lives this morning is simply to behold this power. Now, you you may believe on paper that God is omnipotent, that he is all-powerful. But do you think and live 
as if God's power is immeasurably great? Do you live as if Christ is the risen and reigning Lord of the universe? Behold the power of God this morning, church. See the crucified one now risen and exalted with every enemy under his feet. See him this morning. This is the immeasurable greatness of the almighty power of God. And it only gets better from here. Not only do we know about the greatness of God's power, we also need to know about the gift of God's power. The gift of God's power. You know, in these verses, so far this is, this is all fairly abstract. This is how powerful God is. But Paul is not simply making an abstract point about how powerful God is. Paul is making a very personal point in these verses to these believers. So I want you to turn with me to Acts 19. I want us to remember something about the Ephesians this morning. So turn with me to Acts 19 for a moment. Acts chapter 19, Paul is in Ephesus bringing the gospel to this city. And here's what's going on in this story. Something about the city of Ephesus is that there was a lot of uh, magic and, and the occult and and really uh, first-hand experience with demonic powers. And Acts 19 tells us the story about how Paul was doing miracles and he was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And, and there were some Jewish exorcists who, who thought, Let's, his, that name Jesus is very powerful. Let's try to use that name when we cast out demons. And so that they, they sought to do this. They sought to uh, they say, I jury by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And, and what happened to these, these seven Jewish exorcists? Look in verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. So, so, so this is Ephesus. Ephesus is this, this hotbed for magic and the occult. And many of these believers came out of that background. Some of them were still practicing these things. They had firsthand exposure to the, the unseen spiritual world that, that we really aren't even aware of enough that's going on all the time, the spiritual war that's always going on. They, they knew it firsthand. And it would have been a temptation for them to be fearful of these spiritual forces. And, and so Paul's making a personal point in these verses. He's not just saying that you may know the immeasurable greatness of his power, but that you may know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. He wants them to know not just that God is powerful, but that God's power is toward us. This amazing, limitless power, supremely demonstrated in the resurrection and exaltation and lordship of the crucified Christ, this great might is toward us. That is, it is for us, and it is working in us. The immeasurably great power of God has been given to all who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. How has God given this power? What does this look like? How do believers receive this power? Look at verse 22 again. He says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church gave him as head over all things to the church. 
How does God give us this power? By giving us Christ himself. Jesus himself is the power of God. After God raised Christ from the dead and exalted him to his right hand and put everything in subjection to his lordship, what did he do next? He gave Jesus to us. He gave the head of all things, the ruler of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, to his people. God has given Jesus to us. What should we think when we hear that? God has given him to us. This this all-powerful one. You know, one way we might be tempted to understand this is that Jesus and all his power has been given to us kind of to be our servant. Jesus would be like a magic genie who is the most powerful being in all the universe, and now he is obliged to do our bidding. God has given this powerful one to us. That's not the picture we should have, though. God didn't give Jesus to us to be our servant. God gave Jesus to us to be our husband. We are his bride. And that's totally different, isn't it? What this means is that Jesus, who really is the most powerful being in all the universe, he uses that power on our behalf out of love for us, as a protector of us, cherishing us as his bride. We shouldn't picture Jesus as our personal genie in a bottle. We should picture Jesus as a powerful king who takes a destitute bride to himself and says, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to take care of you. In him, God has given us the immeasurable greatness of his power. We are the bride of the most powerful being in all the universe. And he will protect us. He will love us. He will cherish us. He will keep us safe. And what this meant for the Ephesians and what this means for us is that we don't have to be afraid. Church, what powerful thing are you tempted to fear this morning? It's a lot of powerful things in the world. There's a lot of powerful things in the universe. What powerful thing are you tempted to be afraid of? Are you afraid that your sin will win the day over your faith? Are you afraid that some form of suffering might enter your life that you just cannot bear? Are you afraid of the world and the culture and the way things are trending? Are you afraid that Satan's devices against you will be successful? Do not be afraid this morning, church. The one who is head over all things has been given to us as our husband. He loves us. He gave himself for us on the cross. He will protect us. He will cherish us. And one day he will present us to himself without spot or wrinkle or blemish, absolutely holy, and we will be safe with him forever. He himself is the gift of God's power to us. Praise God for giving us his son. Finally, why? Why has God made this power available to us? Why has God given us this power? The third thing we need to know this morning is the goal of God's power. We've seen the greatness of his power, the gift of his power, but why? Why has he given this to us? And and so we're going to look at the goal of God's power. I I was thinking this week that there is a lot of faith in the power of God in the world today. There's a lot of faith in the world about the power of God. There's a lot of faith in the power of Jesus Christ in the world today. 
Christian bookstores, sermons are filled with books and teachings that hold out the power of God to us. The power of the name of Jesus. Nothing is more powerful than the name of Jesus. His power is immeasurably great. Every enemy is subject to Christ. No one can stand before Christ. And we would say, yes, amen, right? But here's where it goes. So in the name of Jesus, be healed of all your sicknesses. In the name of Jesus, be financially blessed. In the name of Jesus, have your dream marriage. Have your dream job. Have your dream family. Have your dream house. Have your dream car. In the name of Jesus, who is over all, have all these things. You see, there's great faith in the power of God, but there's great confusion about why he's given us this power. God has not given us the gift of his immeasurably great power for us to seek selfish gain. These things are not the goal of God's power toward us. But I think we can begin to see why he has by looking at how Paul describes the church in verse 23. He says, The church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God has given Christ to the church because the church is his body. God has given the power of Christ to the church because we are his fullness. What does it mean to be the body of Christ? What does it mean to be the fullness of him who fills all in all? Just that phrase, just hear that this morning, church. If you're a believer in Jesus, then you are a member of his body, and together we are the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is the one who fills all things. He is sovereign over everything in all the universe. His glory and power fill the earth. But right now, Jesus reigns in heaven, and we live on earth to be his body. And what Jesus does with us, his church, with his body, is he fills us in such a unique way that we can rightly be called his fullness. So it means to be his body, that he fills us in such a way that we are his fullness on the earth. There's nothing in us But he fills us with himself. He fills us with his spirit so that we can be his fullness on the earth. We can represent him. This is a high calling. This is an amazing calling. This is is incredible to think about that this is who we are. We are the fullness of the one who fills all. But it's true, church. By the spirit of Christ who dwells in us, we are filled with the fullness of him who fills all things so that we can represent the reigning Christ in this world. And this is why God has given us the gift of his power, to equip us to do this, to empower us to be the body of Christ. The power of Christ toward us enables us to live out our identity as his fullness. He didn't give us his power for our own selfish gain in this life. He gave us this power to fulfill our calling as members of the body of Christ. It's a corporate calling that he's given to us. He gives the church his power so that the church can represent him rightly in the world. The reigning risen Lord. This is what the power of God is for in our lives, church. This is God's calling. Be the body of Christ. And so at a practical level, you may be saying, like, I want to experience this power in my life. I want to know this power. So so what do we need to do this morning if we're going to know the power of Christ? At a practical level, what do we need to do if we're going to experience this immeasurably great power? Well, in light of that design, in light of that purpose, in light of our identity, the first thing we need to do is we need to commit ourselves to God's calling as members of the body of Christ. 
If God's given us this power to be His body, then we need to start thinking about ourselves as members of the body. That is our identity. That is, that is who you are. I am a member of the body of Christ. I am a member of the body of Christ who is called to represent Christ's fullness in this world. Commit yourself to that calling. Make that a central part of your self-identity, the central part of who you are. And of course, if you do that, then, then you understand we can't do this alone. I mean, you might be like the big toe of the body, but you're not the body. You are not the body of Christ. We cannot do this alone. If we're going to live as his body and represent his fullness, then we need to do it with the other members of the body. This commitment means that we live our Christian lives together, and it means that we minister together as fellow members of the body of Christ. And so you commit yourself to that. You commit yourself to that identity, and you commit yourself to pressing into the body. You commit yourself to ministering with the body. This is God's calling on us. This is why he's given us this power. To empower not just me and not just you, but to empower us as the body of Christ on earth. So first, commit yourself to this calling. When we are walking in this calling, we will see the power of God on display. We will experience the power of God as we pursue being the body of Christ. This is why he's given it to us. But second, do we really want to experience the power of God that's been given to us? And the second application is that we need to be weak. Be weak. And this is where our, where our experience is a little different than the Steve Rogers experiment. Okay, So once he was zapped with the Vita Rays, he was just inherently strong and fast from that day forward. He didn't ever, ever have to think about his former puniness. But that is not the way the power of God works in our lives. Paul had to learn this the hard way. I mean, Paul experienced the power of God in some significant ways. I mean, in, in, in Acts 19, we just read right before what we just read, it said that, that people just were being healed by just touching his handkerchief. I mean, Paul, Paul experienced some powerful things. But listen to what he writes in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, To keep me from becoming conceited, to keep me from becoming arrogant, to keep me from thinking that, that there was something special about me, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you want to experience the power of God that's been given to you? Then be weak. It is when we are weak that we are strong. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. When we make much of our weaknesses, that is when the power of Christ rests upon us. And so this morning, church, I want to call us, I want to call us collectively to weakness. That's what I want to call us this morning, is let us embrace our inherent weakness. Do you ever feel that weakness? Do you ever feel your weakness to deal with sin? in your own life or in a brother or sister's life? Do you ever feel your weakness to evangelize? Do you ever feel your weakness to make disciples? 
Do you ever feel your weakness to make an impact on the community? Your weakness to withstand spiritual warfare? Your weakness to really live out our identity as the body of Christ? We, we, we are weak in these things. We are inherently weak in these things. And this morning, church, let's boast in our weaknesses. Let us say, yes, God, we are so weak. We can do nothing. We are entirely inadequate and insufficient. Let that be our prayer to him this morning. We are weak. But then let us also say, and you, God, are immeasurably strong. You, Lord, have risen from the dead, and you reign over every power in the universe. And so we boast in our weakness and we glory in his strength and then we ask him, so fill us with your power to fulfill your calling as your body and your fullness on the earth. Church, we are entirely weak, but God's power toward us is immeasurably great. So this morning, let's boast in our weaknesses so that we can walk in his strength as the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you right now and we, we, we say, we are weak. Lord, I, I confess how weak I am. And we confess how weak we are. We, we could never do anything good on our own. We can't be our sin. We will, we will bow out when suffering comes. We have, we have no power against Satan or his schemes. We fear this world. We fear what could happen to us. And we have in, in no way any ability to, to be the body, to be your fullness. We, we are so weak, Lord. And, and yet, Lord, you are immeasurably strong. Your power is limitless. And we know this because of Jesus. We know this because after he took our sins on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins and bore your wrath and was crucified and dead and buried, that you raised him from the dead to immortal life and you exalted him to your right hand in heaven. You subjected everything under his feet, both now and in the age to come. And you then gave him to us. You gave him to us. And Jesus, you are our husband. You are our protector. You are our uh, cherisher. You are our provider, Lord. And, and we believe in you. And we trust you. And because you are so immeasurably strong, and because you've called us to be your body, you've called us to be your fullness on the earth, Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your strength, that you would demonstrate your power, that you would show in weak vessels like us the greatness of your power and the greatness of the gospel and the transforming might of what you've done on the cross for us. Lord, we look to you right now as the one who has had all things subjected to you. And we pray that we would know, truly know, the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us, that we might walk as your body faithfully for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.